to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good, and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Khaldun Swice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. Well, welcome to the Logically Faithful Podcast. Thank you for being with me. I have a wonderful guest who's been an inspiration to me uh, throughout the years. Um, Mr. Greg Kokel is a head of Stand to Reason, the author of a number of prolific books, wonderful literature on engaging your culture, and the head of the Stand to Reason uh, podcast and ministry. I strongly recommend that to you. And of course, after this uh, discussion, we will uh, have some links in the show notes to uh, his uh, his work and the things he's been doing. He's also a um, adjunct professor and does a lot of work as well. Do you still do some work at Biola there? I do. Um, and, and I'm an adjunct, which means I don't have to carry a full load, but they have me do special projects. So it's kind of feather in my cap. It's a feather in their cap. It's a nice relationship. Still a prestigious, wonderful uh, university there. <laughs> uh, great work. Okay. So okay. what I'm going to do is get into the, the heat of the uh, meat of the matter here. Uh, there is a, a lot of uh, work going on in the postmodern world, specifically in the, uh, the non postmodern world in the political arena, which is very moralized, as you see, in, in right. one spectrum or another, which uh, some authors, specifically in the New York Times and others, have called it the death of relativism recently, uh, because people have been pushing forward with a, um, a leftist or a, a progressive agenda, saying there is right. actually truth, and the truth is to honor the, um, the LGBT movement, or to honor the weak and the disenfranchised, to honor the, um, the uh, stop homo, homo, homophobia and Islamophobia, etc. Of right, course, right. Um, we have to also, if we want to be consistent, deal with Christianophobia, <laughs> but we're not dealing with yeah. that, are we? <laughs> and one of the big uh, contributors um, to this, many years ago, uh, Joseph Campbell came out with the book Myths yeah. to live by, and he's he's been a uh, interesting writer, uh, saying that myths are the way we make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, they're stories, they're legends, and religions are just part of these myths. And there's some truth to that, as Lewis would say, but there's a nuance. Mm -hmm. How in in dealing with this question, and we're going to jump into uh, the murky waters of religious uh, worldviews of how do we navigate between the difference between a a worldview that's caricatured or created or artificial as opposed to one that comes from us let's say so to speak from Sinai uh, from the mountain to a prophet to to mankind how do we even navigate those waters but before we do that Greg let me um let me ask you is there anything that you would like to share about why you continue doing what you do uh, in the spectrum that you're in in the um, in the arena that you're in what yeah. drives you what is your motivating uh, factor well I was uh, raised in a kind of a quasi Christian home, I guess. Uh, what I mean by that is that we went through other religious motions, but uh, when push came to shove, it wasn't a deep conviction of our heart. And so as a result, when all of us grew up, uh, we all went our separate ways. Uh, and for me, that was uh, in the mid-60s during the countercultural revolution, and I was embracing a lot of ideas of the day. And as I look back on these things now, I find that virtually <laughs> Nothing that I believed back then um, w w w could hold up to any careful, thoughtful scrutiny now, all right? It was, I was like a lot of people, socialized to accept 
uh, the popular notions of the day. And, uh, and then when I began to think more carefully about it, I realized that these things were not sound. And around this time, I was also being reintroduced to the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, they compelled me. And as a result, um, when I was 23 years old as a student at UCLA, I decided to become a follower of Jesus. And since that time, I've been trying to help other people to follow him at the same time. And a key part of my conviction about this whole enterprise, Professor, is that I am convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is worth thinking about. Now, I said those words slowly because I'm choosing my words advisedly here. Mm. Um, I think the way he saw the world and the way he saw human beings and the claims that he made about reality and the claim he made about my own life um, are sound and accurate to the way the world actually is. I, I think he demonstrated that he was the person that he claimed to be, and he's worthy of our allegiance. And uh, this is why I follow him. Uh, not because I like everything he says, not because it makes me feel good, because mm. it doesn't make me feel good much of the time. I follow him because I think what he says is true and what he claims about himself is true. And when I say true, I don't mean true for me. <laughs> I mean true to reality. I'm not talking about true regarding what's on the inside of me. I'm talking about true regarding what's on the outside, the way the world actually is. Now, of course, that's an aggressive claim that needs to be justified, and one of the right. things I've been doing the last 43 years <laughs> is demonstrating to people, uh, explaining why that claim is justified over and against other religious claims, other worldview claims. I've spoken on more than 70 college and university campuses, uh, making the case that Jesus is worth thinking about. And my background is not only in advanced degrees in Christian theology, apologetics, but also in philosophy. I have a master's in philosophy. And so I'm trying to bring all those tools to bear on this question. How can we be careful to think properly about what's true about the world, especially the most important things? And that's the thing that motivates me, Professor. That's what keeps me going. That's what gets me fired, out about, fired up about doing conversations like this. Well, thank you. Um, now, when you mentioned it's it's true, and you were very careful to say it's not just true for you in a subjective sense and an right. internal sense, but you're saying true outside of yourself, which means it would have to also be true for the Muslim, the Hindu, the Sikh, as well as the um, the garbage man, the president, yeah. and I, the I would, I would professor who has denied it. Let me just make a, a qualification. When you say true for the Sikh, the problem within our conversation now, people understand the word for in a curious way. Mm -hmm. I would say it is true regarding the Sikh. It was regarding the Hindu, regarding the Muslim, and regarding the garbage man, or the plumber, or the lawyer, or anybody else, mm -hmm. or the university professor who doesn't believe. And what I mean by that is, sometimes when we say it's true for them, we mean that they believe it. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for the Muslim. No, it's not true in that sense because they don't believe it. I mean these things are true like gravity is true. Mm. If you didn't believe in gravity, if you rejected the notion, then you would say, well, it's not true for him, mm. gravity, but it would still apply to him. If he didn't believe in gravity, he would just float away. 
you know, it's still part of the real world. That's the sense in which I mean it. I imagine you're incorporating not the coherence, but the more the uh, the general what philosophers call the correspondence theory. Exactly and, right. In addressing that, but even with the correspondence theory of truth, it has its problems of dropping uh, ourselves into a a nuanced position or non-nuanced position of saying that somehow I'm able to see this truth beyond myself. Yeah. When the problem is, and this is what philosophers call the problem of epistemology, when we deal with the question of what I know from what is and the link between the two or what my community knows or thinks they know (laughs) or or have passed down to know and then what actually is. And to to draw that link in that connection uh, to something like, um, like gravity or mathematics is, right. is is more um, is is more grounded in in the in the work of science and the work of logic to be able to do that. But when yeah. you get into areas like the spiritual and the theological, uh, some argue would argue that's just poetry. Uh, yeah. How do you well, argue well, me, that is a true? Yeah. Uh, talk to me about that when you say Jesus says true things. Um, give us one example of something he would say that's true oh, that I can me, ground uh, for I, I'm all these people at that the would apply here, that. I'm chomping at the bit a little bit. Sorry for me for interrupting, sure, but because no, uh, I'm so I'm so excited about responding to this because I want to go back just a few moments. It's interesting the way you put it. You have things like gravity or mathematics as opposed to religion, and so one seems to be we can be confident in it, and the other one we can't. This is the epistemological question, you know, and you say, and philosophers have raised the epistemological question, how that here is the problem is the way you cited it. And I I agree with all of those things, but I just want to make an observation about it. Mm -hmm. In gravity, we are drawing a conclusion about an invisible thing based on physical behaviors. You don't see gravity. You see the consequence of gravity, okay? So strictly speaking, gravity is not empirically known. Mm-hmm. Math is completely abstract. Mm-hmm. Absolutely and completely abstract. But notice how, how quickly and understandably, and I think properly, you included both of those things in the category of things that can be known. But notice what the, these are, these are invisible entities, okay, that all of a sudden we're so con- confident in. Think of your en- opening sentence. Well, philosophers, it went to the uh, something like this. Philosophers have pointed out the problem, the epistemological problem of, of knowing, uh, given our subjective awareness, and how do we know the objective world. But notice how the philosophers are presenting this epistemological problem as if it's real. Notice how the philosophers are very comfortable asserting the nature of the problem. Wait a minute, nature of problem? That's not physical. That's Mm -hmm. not empirical. Mm -hmm. That is completely mental. Now, I, I don't object to the positioning of the question, and I think it needs to be addressed. But part of the way we address it is to notice that even in asking the question the way it's done, we give a little bit of a hint to the answer. Mm-hmm. The question doesn't justify utter skepticism because the question itself could be challenged in the same way. And so if we're not careful, we end up in a self-refutation situation, what I call a suicide. Your point of view ends up collapsing. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's appropriate to ask the question, what is the connection between uh, the epistemological connection between um, belief and knowledge. How do we cross that divide? Mm-hmm. However, 
we can't say that we can't cross the divide because our, all of the statements that lead us up to the question itself are statements that we are pretty confident we know. And even things like gravity or math, we know. So there must be, even though it's not empirical, even though some of these are abstracts. So here's what I'm getting at, Professor. I'm saying that we, it's obvious in even all this conversation that there are certain things we do know with confidence, and we have ways of knowing those things. And in fact, if we couldn't know some things with some confidence, then we wouldn't even be able to ask these questions about other things. And indeed, we would be dead in a day because our ability to survive every single moment requires that we get some things about reality right. So this is all simply to push back on a kind of radical skepticism, and I think a, a little bit of a self-serving, almost uh, arrogant skepticism that people are pushing out there whenever they hear any claims of a religious or metaphysical nature. Oh, well, you can't know that. Oh, yeah. really? Mm -hmm. And why would you say that? that would how, be how would you know that? How would you know that you can't know that? Right, right. Well, well said. Well said, uh, Greg. Because uh, we are, in challenging the question, we are opening ourselves up to a myriad, uh, a whole uh, oh, variety of objections that raise themselves up against our own position. By challenging yeah. the position, we raise ourselves up to a lot of criticisms as well, such as challenging a position without actually questioning myself in, in, in challenging it. Sure. I understand and, and well said in there. However, uh, if I may push back on this, and I'm, I'm taking sure. up, of course, the, the, the position here though of many of our listeners. Um, of course. For example, the New Testament claims that Jesus of Nazareth was born, and not just the New Testament, I believe uh, other uh, historians have also documented this, that he was born in Bethlehem, which is a historic place that we can actually go visit today, and you can look into a historical records on that. Now, that's a, that's right. a claim. That's, that's a historic claim. No, no problem. Okay, fine. He was born in Bethlehem. He may have died in Jerusalem, etc. Um, but the problem, okay, that's not the, the big issues that people have a problem with. The problems come in of other claims that are not necessarily empirically verifiable. Like maybe Bethlehem would be empirically verifiable. Maybe right. the, the, the variety of the manuscript evidence is empirically verifiable. The reliability of the manuscripts, empirically verifiable. But other claims such as, um, before Abraham was, I am. That is not an empirically verifiable claim. It's a, it's a claim that he's making, or God would say, for example, in the in, in Isaiah, um, I alone am God, there is none other, there has never been, nor never will be. I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. Yeah, these are powerful right. claims. That's right. But these are not claims I can, I don't know if I can put them on the, the test tube, not necessarily physically speaking, no, but how can I even do it logically speaking? Um, well, right, sure, I can respond to that. I just want to point out, though, that... Um, I wonder why, and I'm just asking this rhetorically somewhat, is that why is the so-called empirically verifiable system mm -hmm. the one that is the gold standard for the enterprise? Good point. Of knowledge? Mm -hmm. And that's called scientism, by the way, uh, or verificationism. You know, these, are, these have been tried many times in the 20th century and failed miserably mm -hmm. as being inadequate. It's not that empiricism... Or empirical methods aren't valuable for knowing, but empiricism as a way of knowing is itself not verifiable empirically. <laughs> right. So what I, I the pushback here is let's not keep saying like, well, this is empirically verifiable and therefore it's reliable, and anything else is wildly under question. Let's take Bethlehem for example. Bethlehem you can find, but whether Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
That's not empirically verifiable. That is historically verifiable. Mm -hmm. That is a different matter entirely. Mm -hmm. And uh, now there are some people who just reject the notion of being able to verify things that happened in the past. But of course, our entire lives are thick with that. Mm -hmm. Even our conversation, you remembering the statement I just made (laughs) is you verifying something that happened in the past. Which I can't prove, right. right. Unless I video and... You can't can't prove empirically. You can have access to it in a different way, memory, for example, Mm -hmm. or whatever. So I'm just simply saying we have other means than empiricism to to know things with reliability, and one of those is historically. So if we look back at the historical records, and we can demonstrate that they have been passed on accurately over time, and we can look at the testimony of those records, then we can see Jesus' claim to be the great I am, and then ask, is there anything that we can verify historically that happened in his life that gives us reason to take that claim seriously? Well, the answer to that is yes. Give us, <laughs> because, uh, one, give us one, um, so just in the interest oh, of time. Um, yesterday was Easter Sunday. This was the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, a lot of people want to dismiss it as just a myth. You mentioned George Campbell, or Joseph Campbell, rather, earlier, mm-hmm. about uh, these are religious legends that help us make sense of the world. Um, mm-hmm. You know... I'm respectful of Joseph Campbell, but if these things, all of these things are just legends, they don't tell us anything about the world. All they tell us is about our ability to be imaginative. It tells us nothing about the world. Now, think about this. If Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, wow, this has metaphysical implications, okay? Mm -hmm. That could tell us something about the world. But why should we believe that? Well, there are there are, are a, a number of very core facts that virtually every single historian of the life of Jesus affirms to be true, all right? And that is, I'm, when I say everything, I'm talking about in the 90 percentile, almost every single one of these facts. And that's because they're non-controversial. Jesus lived and died, was executed on a Roman cross, okay? That Jesus was executed on a Roman cross all historians acknowledge and this doesn't matter what their convictions are they can be total atheists they're historians they know how this works okay secondly he was buried in a tomb that was empty three days later that tomb was empty hmm. so we're talking about 75 percent of the historians hold that and there's a good reason because the resurrection myth could be put to bed just simply by producing the body okay hmm. Third, they all acknowledged that the disciples were transformed people because they thought they saw a risen Jesus. And fourth, skeptics like James and Saul of Tarsus turned on a dime and gave their lives for what they thought was the resurrected Christ, okay? Now those aren't supernatural events, none of them. A guy getting crucified, an empty tomb, people who had experiences, and people who had a change of mind. Nothing is supernatural about that. But the question now needs to be put, given those four historical facts that virtually all historians agree on, what is the best explanation for those facts? Now, we don't have time to go into that. I've I've written on it. A lot of other people have written on it. If anybody wants a quick, enjoyable summary, they can watch The Case for Christ on, on the movies because it's out this week. Yeah, and I just took my students uh, the other day. We went together to see that. Yeah, yeah. well, you, you know that this is not anything like 
the, any other faith film that people might have seen. Mm -hmm. This is a great drama. It's wonderfully written, fully produced, and I'm very critical of those other kind of so-called Christian films, but I, this one is, uh, is one to see. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about it. But you will also see these same facts played out in a powerful way mm -hmm. to argue for the resurrection of Christ. And no, I, simply I, put, I, Professor, mm -hmm. everybody's got to make their own decision about this, but it's not a leap in the dark. It's not a wild leap of faith. It is based on empirical evidence, if you historical evidence that we have about that time, from which one concludes the best explanation is what the disciples gave themselves. He who was dead is now alive. That's an example of arguing for a religious claim mm -hmm. from the in a somewhat concrete evidence that we have at hand. Right, and the hypothesis that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead would have to be denied if you propose, or excuse me, embrace some kind of scientism or naturalism or some kind of subjectivism on the issue of truth, which would not be a fair assessment. Uh, well, that, that would be no assessment. Yeah. That would no. not be an assessment of the evidence yeah. at all. It would no. be an a priori dismissal. Exactly. Yeah. And so my view is, let's, why don't we follow the evidence where it leads instead of disqualifying alternatives before all the facts are in? Okay, well, Link, I'll do some show notes there to some of these additional resources uh, that, that, that testify to that. Uh, you talked about this in your book, your new book, uh, The Story of Reality, which I'm going through right. myself right now. Actually, I'm almost halfway through. Uh, uh -huh. Where you mentioned the, uh, the, the reality of, of the world is beyond our own belief system. It's not what I want to be true. It's not what it makes me comfortable. It's not what works for me. It's actually what is. And the closer I can get to that, the closer I can find peace in my own life and uh, make the world a better place. How, uh, can you expand on the, the story of reality, um, the book that you have out, um, to give people an idea of um, how that links to our journey to finding truth in the murky waters of all the religions? Yeah, just, yeah, uh, sure. Um, the, the sub, sure, this, the, the book is titled The Story of Reality, and the subtitle is How the World Began, How It Ends, and everything important that happens mm -hmm. in between, with the key on the word important. That's why I can get it in <laughs> under 200 pages. Um, but um, what I am, pardon me, what I'm advancing there is, a, is a, a Christian understanding of what the world, and here I mean the world in its largest sense, reality is actually like. So this is a worldview book. But what I'm trying to show is that there are many things that we know as human beings inhabiting the world we already know these things. We know that the, the reality of the external world. We know that we have an ability to find out true things about this world. Uh, this is common sense things that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if we didn't know these, if we didn't know certain things to be true about the world, we, we would be dead in a day. Uh, we also know that there's something wrong with the world. Mm. Everybody knows this. Every culture, every human being, at every time in history something is wrong with the world, okay? So if we're going to have a worldview that captures reality, that in other words, it tells the, story, the true story of reality, then it has to be faithful to our common sense understandings of the way the world actually is. Not the way that we wish it is, not the way that our philosophies want to distort it. And I think the earlier challenge that you offered, uh, the, the kind of postmodern challenge, the question about knowledge. This is a this is a this is a distortion of common sense reality. The fact is, we know we can know things about the world, and even though some things might be hard, I get that. There are other things that are not that hard. The fact that there's a problem with the world, everybody knows that. And by the way, that's not an empirical assessment. 
We are looking no. at empirical things in the world. We'll look at a tragedy where people get destroyed by some human being or by some force of nature, whatever. That's empirical, but our judgment that things shouldn't be that way is not an empirical judgment. It is a it is a non empirical assessment of that that we are naturally making because we think the world is not the way it's supposed to be okay so notice how naturally we traffic in these things these non-empirical things without even thinking about it Mm. notice by the way though if we are quick to say the world is not the way it's supposed to be That's only because we know there is a way that the world is supposed to be, and it isn't like that much of the time. That is a clue about what the story is really about. And Mm -hmm. we ought not miss these clues when we're trying to assemble the big picture. So what I do in the story of reality is I try to show how the the Christian or Jesus view of reality um, fits the way the world really is, that's the correspondence element, and it also coheres, it fits together in a grand drama from beginning to end that explains, among other things, why the world is broken and how the world gets fixed. And this is where Jesus comes in, of course. Okay, okay. and this is the gist of your book, where you put that together. Yeah, and you talk about how, was it Francis Schaeffer who said the beginning of the Christian position is not Jesus of Nazareth, but God made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, that's actually Nancy Piercy's comment. Was it Piercy? The fine, the, the fine forward that she wrote for the yeah, book. Yeah, that was from her. Okay, okay. Well, so it well, is between uh, the covers, but I have to give her credit for that. <laughs> okay, and she's a fine writer in her in her own right. Yeah. Um, let's. Um, I, I I'm, I'm trying to take up the mantle of my uh, my audience and ask you the questions sure. that they would be asking in this realm. You have sure. um, uh, uh, there are of course other questions I want to get to here, but let's let's take a moment here. We're going to take a break. And we'll come back, uh, and then we'll, we'll continue to engage in this uh, this wonderful part, or maybe even uh, go into part two of this, if it's, uh, and we'll pick up where where we left off, so we can continue to engage and uh, work on our soul, cultivate our souls, and engage our minds in one of those important topics. <laughs> 